BridgeBank helps breakthrough ideas actually break through and remains dedicated to providing financial solutions to those committed to leveraging innovation to make the world a better place. BridgeBank, a division of Western Alliance Bank. BridgeBank, be bold, venture wisely. Hey, it's Avery Truffleman, host of Articles of Interest. And I've got to say, I've been a fan of KQED ever since I was a little kid and I would come out to San Francisco to visit my grandma. It was just what we'd always turn on every time we got in the car, every time we were making dinner and turning on the radio, it was always KQED. And then over the years, I've become a massive fan of KQED podcasts because this is local reporting at its best. These are answers to questions you've always wanted to know, interviews with exciting, unusual voices, necessary journalism, all told with love and care and artistry. And did you know that a majority of KQED's funding actually comes from members? It's just people like you and me supporting the programs they love while also getting access to cool events, behind-the-scenes footage, and so much more. If you want to sign up and be a part of this amazing community, visit donate.kqed.org slash podcasts to become a member today. That's podcasts with an S. Thank you for listening, and thank you for your support. From KQED. From KQED Public Radio in San Francisco, I'm Mina Kim. Coming up on Forum, the pandemic hit when income inequality was already high. Now it's put millions of Californians on the brink of financial disaster. According to a new report from the Public Policy Institute of California, one in eight households were behind on their rent or mortgage payments in fall, and many face the end of unemployment benefits. We look at what's needed to blunt the impact of the recession and create an equitable recovery with UC Berkeley professor and former Labor Secretary Robert Reich and the Public Policy Institute's Sarah Bone. Join us. This is Forum. I'm Nina Kim. Without more economic relief, hundreds of thousands of Californians will lose unemployment benefits at the end of the year. By early next year, millions could face losing their homes, as the state's eviction moratorium is slated to expire February 1st. Here to talk about the magnitude of the state's economic crisis triggered by the pandemic is Sarah Bone, Vice President of Research and Senior Fellow at Public Policy Institute of California, which just released a report on what needs to be done so that Californians hit hardest by this recession, low-wage workers, people of color, women, can recover quickly. Sarah Bone, thanks for joining us. Thank you for having me, Mina. What do past recessions tell us about what those hit hardest by them face in terms of impact and recovery? So this has been a year of unprecedented crisis, and we often think about every recession is different in some way. But I, what I would say is, you know, every recession, major recession in California is the same in the sense that it has exacerbated divides in economic opportunity where low-income families see larger drops in income, take much longer to recover than higher-income families. Uh, and we are repeating that pattern today, uh, the, the current data and, and conditions suggest, perhaps even worsening it. 
And one of the things that you made very clear in your report was that there were a lot of people who were already struggling before this pandemic or who had just recovered from the previous recession. How did this differ geographically? Yeah, it's, it's an important consideration because California is so large. Um, we have such diverse regions uh, and sectors. Low-income families basically had barely recovered across the state before this recession hit. And in general, across kind of recessions over the past 40 years, low-income families took about a decade to recover. So, you know, putting mm-hmm. that puts us, you know, 10 years after the Great Recession, just barely having recovered. Um, and that's actually driven that even that uh, pretty dire level of recovery is, is driven by the results in the Bay Area, Los Angeles that were really kind of um, ahead on recovery, especially for low income families. So, you know, we see the far northern parts of California, inland California, both the Central Valley and Inland Empire, and took much longer for low incomes to recover about 12 years. And you mentioned that while this pandemic is, of course, unprecedented to some extent, that recessions generally follow a similar pattern. One thing that is different uh, is just the number of people who can work remotely or how remote work uh, has gone up so dramatically as a result. Does that affect the disparities? It absolutely does. And I think it really brings into sharp relief the reality of our labor market that was already there in terms of the divides and kind of the nature of work, the opportunities for work across the spectrum. So, you know, we see, you know, that's really contributing to kind of the the disparity in outcomes so far this year, where low-income families, low workers in low-income families are much more likely to be out of work. Um, their unemployment rates are, you know, 25 to 30 percent this year, and I'm talking about families um, in, in, in the kind of the bottom 10 percent of families that are earning about $30,000 a year or less. Contrast that to the statewide unemployment rate, which is 9%. So low-income families are doing, you know, having a much harder time. And and high-income families where they're able to work remotely um, uh, and and kind of maintain the status quo in terms of their labor market uh, conditions um, are much, much less likely to be unemployed. And if you have questions about how the economic crisis triggered by this pandemic is playing out in California, you can join us at 866-733-6786, or you can also email us, forum at kqed.org, or post them online at KQED Forum. So one of the things that your report also mentions is that at least from March through July, poverty likely did not increase. I mean, what do you think have been the most effective interventions in California that staved off, in some cases, financial catastrophe that need to continue in the short term, in the short term? The evidence so far suggests that federal expansions to unemployment insurance, safety net programs, and stimulus checks that many families received were really the key things that staved off increases in poverty, especially through the depth of kind of what we experienced this year and the middle part of the year. Um, Some of that has already expired, like the unemployment insurance kind of supplemental benefit of $600 a week expired this summer. But nonetheless, the federal government funded much of the expansions to workers who would otherwise not be qualified um, to receive unemployment insurance benefits because they may be self-employed, they may be gig workers, have less work history, that kind of thing. Um, and that in total, those unemployment insurance benefits uh, brought in about $110 billion uh, to California, which clearly helped families um, make rent, um, you know, 
just get by, um, mm-hmm. but also brought resources into our economy that kind of we're, we're also, we think, really supporting the sectors that were still able to function um, or function as close to normal as possible this year. And of course, we're talking with Sarah Bone of Public Policy Institute of California. So that those were the things that needed to be done to address the the impacts of the recession in the short term. But one of the things that you also talk about in your report is what needs to be done in the long term to actually create a more equitable recovery to try to improve the speed at which people, low-wage workers, people who are hit hardest recover. Can you talk about sort of what the short-term and long-term priorities need to be? Sure. And in the short term, we focus a lot on stabilizing things. And we're still in a, you know, a really dire circumstance where economic activity is constrained. We want to make sure that families, businesses are kind of able to get through this um, until we see COVID-19 abating and we can kind of return to normal. So, you know, what I mentioned about unemployment insurance, safety net benefits is one way to target um, that near-term kind of stabilization effort. Of course, directing resources to businesses that have been hampered by this recession is also critical. And the federal government has, has directed resources to that, but the state is also working on you know, leveraging private investment um, through what we call public-private partnerships to help direct more capital to struggling businesses. Um, I, I would point to also in the near term what we we need to be thinking about how how Californians will get back to work. Will their jobs be there? Are sectors undergoing structural changes and kind of what they're going to be looking for in their workforce? So that we need to actually train more Californians for different kinds of jobs. The state can play a big role there because uh, you know we've ha- direct a lot of state resources to the educational system, including community colleges. Um, the other piece I would point to for kind of near-term issues is, is the care sector. Um, we've seen how the closure of schools and childcare facilities has hampered um, labor force participation among women, especially this year. Uh, and so thinking about how we get as many Californians back to work as quickly as possible will rely on what we do in that childcare sector, especially um, to make sure that it's affordable, accessible by, by as many Californians as, as possible. And of course, um, it sounds I, like, yeah, sorry, go right ahead. Uh, sorry, I, I, uh, I wanted to touch on like over the long term, some of those same things, I think, are what we look towards um, to not just bring people back to work, but um, to really address um, economic opportunity over the long run. So I say I see education across the spectrum from early learning through kind of job training, higher education as critical to ensuring that more Californians can can be on that kind of upward ladder um, in, a, in the in the modern economy. And it sounds like, of course, all of this is only possible once we control the virus. But the other piece of this is that a lot of emphasis is on reopening the economy and bringing jobs back. But one of the points that the report makes is that that's great, but you also have to increase wages to reduce inequality, among many other things like you just pointed out. A lot of the things you're talking about, Sarah Bone, will require substantial investment while the state has basically fewer resources right now. I mean, what do you see as the biggest challenges to trying to have an equitable recovery? It is a huge challenge in the short run. California's kind of budget position 
um, is a little bit better this year than we expected um, because revenues, tax revenues have come in just greater than expected. There obviously was a lot of uncertainty this year in those kind of projections. So that gives the state some flexibility, especially this year to kind of shore up its budget, to direct resources to, you know, families, businesses in, in need and kind of stabilize things um, and also inject resources into the, the education system. Um, but ongoing for, you know, ongoing issues in our budget, will continue to constrain um, state choices on, on what and what they can do in terms of making these long-term investments that we think could really move the needle on, on inequality and economic opportunity. Are there, silver linings is a hard word to use here, but are there things about this particular recession? For example, we've often heard that it's laid bare the disparities or, or the fact that California generally seems to at least uh, California seem to have an appetite for more government intervention. Do those things help us? That's a good question. I, I my my feeling on that is, you know, that this recession has highlighted the inequalities inherent in our economy. But it is, it's a really complex problem that has, frankly, been growing for 40 years. Um, and we know some things that work. <laughs> um, we have solid research um, on certain investments, um, but we, you know, maybe haven't, you know, implemented that at the scale or with the kind of effectiveness that, that is needed. Um, we do, PPIC regularly surveys Californians, and we regularly find that um, a, a pretty a strong support for the state doing more to address the gap between rich and poor. Um, in our latest, um, the latest survey where we asked this question was in September, and we found 59% of the state overall agreed with the statement that the state should do more to reduce the gap. But there's a lot of variation, you know, especially um, in terms of kind of partisanship leaning. Um, so there are really fundamental differences in views about the role of government. Yes, and of course, a lot will depend also on federal support. Indeed, I, I think, you know, especially in the short term, federal support, you know, what Congress is talking about right now, and we're really anxiously waiting to see where they'll land on stimulus, um, it, it's just going to play an outsized role, um, given the, the constraints that not just California, but all states face and not being able to run a deficit. And, you know, local governments also kind of face the same constraints or potentially even worse, um, where that can constrict kind of how things operate at the at the local level and the kind of services and supports that, that we all have access to here. Well, Sarah Bone, thanks for this snapshot of what's happening in California now. I mean, of course, it's one of those things where the trajectory of this recession, we'll have to wait and see, but, but hopefully some of the advice in your report will be heeded. Sarah Bone, Vice President of Research and Senior Fellow at Public Policy Institute of California, really appreciate having you on. Thank you, Mina. Appreciate it. Next up, Robert Reich joins us. Stay with us for that. I'm Mina Kim. You're listening to Forum. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. 
Welcome back to Forum. I'm Mina Kim. Millions of Americans say they're near the brink of economic collapse, and we're looking at what can be done for immediate relief and then to reduce income inequality in the long term. And joining us now is Robert Reich, professor at the Goldman School of Public Policy at the University of California, Berkeley, and former Secretary of Labor under President Bill Clinton. His latest book is The System, Who Rigged It, How We Fix It. Robert Reich, thanks so much for joining us. Well, good morning, Nina. Of course, you've been at the White House before as Labor Secretary. Tell us, what does the White House have at its disposal to do? What are the immediate things that Biden needs to do to address first this recession and its impacts? Well, the most important two things are to distribute and make sure that as many people as possible are vaccinated. Uh, the second is to get a stimulus that is sufficiently large to at least help people survive during a very long, what's likely to be a prolonged period of unemployment. Uh, we already have about 14 and a half million people who are losing their unemployment insurance um, in about two or three weeks. Yes. That Those are 9 million people who have been on the pandemic unemployment insurance, about 4.5 million people who have had extended unemployment insurance. Uh, so you've got uh, actually closer, uh, now that I do the math, 20 uh, million people who had been on uh, unemployment insurance and uh, who are on the verge or who already have lost it. This is a, uh, this is a, a humanitarian human catastrophe. They can't pay their rent. They can't pay their mortgage. Uh, they can't uh, put food on the table. Uh, a lot of these people uh, just need help in order to survive. Now, uh, the real question is how to get that done if Mitch McConnell and the Republicans continue uh, to dig in their heels with regard to this uh, stimulus package, as they are now. Which seems rather strange, right? Because it does at least seem like constituencies that support Republicans or that there is some bipartisan support for a stimulus deal? Well, you would think so. I mean, Kentucky is a state after all. Uh, and like all states, uh, Kentucky uh, desperately needs additional funding, uh, just as California needed, needs additional funding. Uh, although the scale is different, the, the states are in dire straits. Um, you also have an awful lot of people in so-called red states, Republican states, that are uh, as uh, kind of uh, critically uh, potentially affected um, or already being affected by this humanitarian disaster. So I, I don't understand. I, I, I think this is the, once again, the triumph of ideology and partisanship over the public interest. Well, related to this, Richard writes, why do Republicans oppose aid for state and local governments to avoid further layoffs? Is it because of its potential use to address pension fund deficits? Uh, no, Richard. You see, a lot of that um, pension fund deficit is, is in a different, uh, really a different state spending or state budget category. And uh, if the federal government wanted to, it could simply say, well, we're not going to, the money that we are giving to you, the state of Kentucky is not going to be used for your pension obligations. Uh, that is certainly what the federal government does sometimes. Uh, no, I, I think it really has more to do with the same, uh, I call it irrationality, that has led many uh, Republican state governors 
uh, to refuse to expand Medicaid, even though the federal government is picking up 90% of the cost of Medicaid. In fact, they 100% of the cost of expanded Medicaid right now and will pick up 90% of uh, its costs. Uh, you see, um, I think there is a deep suspicion of the federal government. Uh, there's a kind of camel's head under the tent fear that if you allow the federal government to begin to provide any additional aid or assistance, uh, there's no end to it. Uh, but I really do think the largest factor here uh, has to do with just simple partisanship and ideology. I, I honestly can't explain, explain it in any, any other ways. Um, we are facing a national emergency. We are in one. This is a national disaster. Uh, you know, maybe in times of uh, normality, uh, I could explain and even possibly uh, perhaps try to justify what some of these Republican states are doing and what Mitch McConnell is now doing. Uh, but I can't right now. Uh, there's no justification. Let me thank Richard for the comment and remind listeners you can join our conversation with Robert Reich talking about the impact of the pandemic on our economy and on income inequality and what needs to be done to try to address it. You can join the conversation by calling 866-733-6786. Again, 866-733-6786. You can get in touch on Twitter or Facebook at KQED Forum. Or you can email your questions to forum at kqed.org. And let me go to David in San Francisco. David, join us. Oh, well, thank you. Uh, in uh, evening or morning, uh, uh, Robert. I, Good morning, I was gonna, Yeah, I was going to wax all uh, biblical here on two different angles. One is um, uh, giving our birthright up for a bowl of beans. Uh, Esau's problem of giving up his birthright for uh, a, a minor salve. And uh, the idea that uh, we've tried to have a united you stand, divided you fall as this country's principle, but apparently we're being tricked into believing that if we're uh, not qualified, we don't get any uh, any use of our own uh, government or our own property. So equal protection under the law in an epidemic seems like everybody should have access to vaccines. And since Trump has just been announced that uh, he only bought 20% of the uh, needed vaccines, uh, he's trying to actually mathematically get herd, mental or herd immunity uh, to be written into the budget, which is clearly not equal protection. But the other, is, uh, the other biblical angle is jubilee. And uh, it's, uh, as I understand it, Moses believed that money was not a creation of man. It was a, or excuse me, it was not a creation of God. Money was not a creation of God. It was a creation of man. And then in an act of God, in a, in a, a blight, a plague, a drought, a, uh, 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 you know, heat and all of the different uh, floods, that we would cancel debts in order to survive the plague or the drought or the blight. So I'm just wondering, have there ever been uh, actual jubilees in, in a pandemic? Have, have people figured out ways that they can avoid being trapped by the money and just hunker down and do the right thing uh, to save everyone's lives? David, thank you. I, I mean, I think also just the larger point that he's getting at reminds me of some of the things that you were talking about, Robert Reich, in terms of, you know, the really, not so much dramatic, but just the really th hard things, hard things politically that are often needed to try to, quote, do the right thing, which in this case is to try to address the widening income inequality. Well, I, I think there is a, a kind of a 
long-term challenge. Uh, and we all know that for 40 years, the wages of the bottom two-thirds, uh, hourly wages, have been stagnant, adjusted for inflation, and most of the benefits of the economy and most of the benefits of economic growth have gone to the top. That is not an easy trend to reverse, although I certainly do hope that we've learned our lesson from uh, the failure to address this over the past 40 years. I think Donald Trump uh, is, in some sense, uh, a culmination of the frustrations and anger and, uh, and difficulties so many people have had uh, in 2016. Uh, they bought into, not all of them, obviously, but uh, many bought into Donald Trump's uh, sort of uh, racist xenophobia, uh, his, uh, his notion that the best way forward is to shake things up uh, and pick up the pieces later. Uh, 70, what, 72, 73 million people uh, in the election we just had uh, continue uh, to support this notion. Uh, and, and Nina, this is a long-term challenge. This is a big one. Right. Uh, it's... it's uh, Sort of like a, a long-term challenge of, uh, of climate change. It's a long-term challenge of getting our healthcare system uh, to be functional. It's a long-term challenge, uh, many long-term challenges that we keep on putting aside um, in favor of the immediate challenges in front of us. Uh, having said that, though, let me just uh, add that the immediate challenge in front of us this time is not just your normal recession. Uh, it's not just a, a normal downturn. Uh, the last time we had a pandemic or a public health crisis on the scale we are now facing was 1918. Uh, and we don't have good records in 1918 in terms of what the government did at that time. I don't expect we did very much. but um, And we haven't had this degree of unemployment uh, in terms of permanent job loss uh, since the Great Depression uh, of the 1930s. Uh, and so you just take those two crises, for example, and you see how what we are now going through uh, really is off the scale, is off the charts in terms of the kind of response that is required from all of us. Yes. Uh, it sort of raises the central question for me of what is a society? Uh, what is a country? What is a nation? What do we owe each other as members of the same community as a nation? Uh, if we can't come up with... Uh, you know, $908 billion, which is what's now on the table, as a uh, kind of a, a, a disaster relief for people in desperate need and states in desperate need. Uh, I don't know who we are. We just, we just passed a military budget of over $700 billion. Uh, billionaires in this country, since the start of the pandemic, uh, have increased their wealth by over a trillion dollars. In other yes. words, billionaires in this country have increased their wealth more than the $908 billion that is now um, stymied, uh, really, that the Republicans will not agree to because they're worried about spending too much money. I mean, you're absolutely right. So many stats have come out about that. I mean, I was just reading in USA Today that over the seven-month period, you know, America's billionaires grew their net worth by a collective $931 billion. And Hyun tweets, California had the highest poverty rate and income disparity of any state in 2019. I can't find current stats, but it's my guess both numbers got worse. Economic justice stimulus to address this is an absolute need. 
Economic justice stimulus, certainly, and I'm not sure if that goes beyond the, you know, the immediate stimulus to stop the bleeding. But I think what you were pointing to earlier is just why surging inequality can be dangerous for a society and a democracy. I mean, you were saying that it creates an appeal towards demagoguery, for example, or an appeal to somebody like a Trump-like figure. But can you just talk a little bit about what else very high levels of income inequality does to society and democracy that, that people should be really aware of? It undermines uh, the pronoun we. Uh, when we talk about we the people or we Americans, uh, uh, there's less of a sense of it when you are actually a two-tiered society in which uh, the richest 10% who own 92% of the stock market uh, are doing better and better. The stock market is hitting record levels, but the bottom 90% um, really are barely holding on. Uh, and certainly the hourly workers who constitute the bottom two-thirds uh, are really not holding on. Uh, we know that uh, low-wage workers during this pandemic, disproportionately people of color, uh, have been infected disproportionately. They are dying disproportionately. Uh, they have pre-existing conditions. Uh, they are, many of them, so-called essential workers in risky jobs. Uh, we as a nation uh, have made decisions not only right now during this pandemic, but in the years leading up to the pandemic that have created a two-tiered society that is extremely vulnerable during this pandemic to becoming even more unequal. Uh, and if we don't see that, if we don't understand it, if we don't discuss it, if we don't respond to that, uh, then shame on us. So what needs to be done to address income inequality? not just stop the bleeding, but income inequality? And why is it that it seems so hard to do politically? Uh, it's hard to do politically, Nina, because if you're really going to the core issues of where the inequality comes from, you begin to see that it, it comes from an inequality in power. Uh, that is, our society over the past 40 years has become one in which a relatively small number of people uh, are not only super wealthy, but they also have extraordinary power over our system. And it's hard to change that without changing the allocation of power. Uh, let me just explain that for a second, because it's a, it's a complicated and important issue that we also ought to be discussing. Uh, economics is not a zero-sum game. That is, we can grow the economy and everybody can do better, even if the people at the top do far better than the people at the bottom. But power is a zero-sum game. Uh, it's not possible for people at the top to gain more power politically and in terms of their influence uh, without everybody else losing power. And that's essentially what has happened. Now, let's get to a much more practical level. There are many things that Joe Biden uh, after January 20th, could do on his own without Congress to improve the distribution of income and wealth in this country. I mean, he could lower drug prices uh, because the United States is the biggest purchaser of drugs. Uh, and he can do that on his own. He doesn't need Congress. Uh, he can cancel, cancel student debt. Uh, and that would uh, disproportionately help uh, people of color because people of color have 
much or most of that student debt. Uh, he could break up the big banks. He could uh, attack monopolies. Uh, he could make it easier to form unions. Uh, uh, the government, as I said before, is the, is the largest purchaser of goods and services, and so that he could condition government purchases. 20% of the entire economy is government purchases. He could condition that on, uh, on employees, on employers providing their employees with uh, higher wages, with, uh, with, with shares in the company. Um, he could provide overtime pay for many more workers. These are all things that actually an executive can do with executive orders and regulations. So the question, as a very practical matter, you don't have to be 30,000 feet up there talking about the allocation of power and wealth. You can get down to the 500 feet uh, level and say, Joe Biden, you can do these things regardless of what happens January 5th in Georgia. You can do all of this, uh, and we want you to. We're going to hold you to it. Well, what do you think, based on his selections so far, of the likelihood of him doing some of these things? For example, Brian Deese to lead the uh, National Economic Council. Well, I'm cautiously optimistic. I know some of these people. Janet Yellen uh, was, after all, a faculty member at uh, UCAL Berkeley, and uh, she's a labor economist. She cares about these issues. She worries openly about widening inequality. Uh, I know for example, that Jared Bernstein, who's on the Council, the Council of Economic Advisors, also uh, has, uh, he used to work for me at the Labor Department. He's extraordinarily concerned about all of this, has a lot of ideas for what to do about it. Uh, I don't know Deese. Um, I don't know some of the others. But mm. uh, overall, I am, let me emphasize, cautiously optimistic. Caution I say cautiously uh, Nina, uh, because I uh, I know what it's like to be in a White House, having worked in, in a cabinet position. Uh, it's like drinking, we're trying to get a drink from a fire hose. I mean, there's so much coming out you uh, so immediately. Uh, it may be hard for uh, Joe Biden to, to see and respond to the big picture when he's got to get the coronavirus out. He's got to uh, make sure that people get inoculated. He's got to at least negotiate and put into place a stimulus package. He's got a lot of stuff on his plate right away. We're talking with Robert Reich, professor at the Goldman School of Public Policy, University of California, Berkeley, also former labor secretary under President Clinton. And his latest book is The System, Who Rigged It, How We Fixed It. You, our listeners, are joining us at 866-733-6786, and we'll get to your calls right after the break. You can also comment online at KQED Forum on Twitter or Facebook, or email us at forum at kqed.org. Stay with us. I'm Nina Kim. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. Welcome back to Forum. I'm Mina Kim. We're talking with Robert Reich at the Goldman School of Public Policy at Berkeley. 
and author of The System, Who Rigged It, How We Fix It. We're talking about the impact of the pandemic on the economy and income inequality. And you, our listeners, are with us. I'll start with Peter in Palo Alto. Hi, Peter. Hi. I had a question um, about automatic or triggered stimulus packages. Um, basically, what's his position on that? Like, what does he, does he think that they would be work? They would work in their political solution. And are there any moral hazards that are associated with automatic or triggered stimulus packages? Peter, thanks. Robert Reich? Uh, Peter, we already have a number of uh, automatic triggers uh, that are counter-cyclical um, in the sense that when we go into recession, uh, they automatically spring up. Uh, I mean, unemployment insurance would be a good example. Um, we also have uh, a number of provisions that provide people with the kind of special assistance they need. We don't have enough. And you mentioned moral hazard. I just want to make sure everybody is aware of, of that term because conservatives use it a lot. Uh, they worry that, for example, if you provide people with uh, $600 a week extra unemployment insurance, as we did in the original CARES Act, uh, that that will deter them from working. Uh, here's what we know. There have been a number of studies done. In fact, there have been studies done uh, even last spring with regard to the so-called negative employment effect of the CARES Act, that $600 a week extra. And there was, find, there was no finding of moral hazard. There was no finding, in other words, that people actually uh, did, gave up work or did not work when they had an opportunity to work. Uh, that $600 a week actually uh, had uh, enormous positive effect in terms of stimulating the economy, putting money into people's pockets, which they then turned around and spent in the local economy, uh, thereby keeping other people employed. Um, and that is the kind of thing we ought to be doing right now. Well, Peter, thanks for the question. Let me go next to Paul in Sonoma. Hi, Paul. Yes, good morning. I think one of the most uh, progressive policies to come out of the primaries was Andrew Yang's freedom dividend, uh, basically a universal basic income. And I would love to know uh, the guest's opinion on that as a long-term solution to inequality. Thank you. Thanks, Paul. Uh, Paul, I am an advocate of universal basic income. I think that uh, a subsistence wage or a subsistence income is critically important, uh, particularly over the long term, as artificial intelligence takes on more and more of our jobs. Uh, people will have jobs. It's not uh, the question of will they have a job. The question is what the jobs pay. And we're going to have a larger and larger portion of our population in jobs that don't pay very much. So they will need a subsistence wage, uh, a, a supplement to what they are otherwise earning. And again, I want to emphasize, as I did with Peter, this is not only good for the individual or good for a family, it's good for the economy as a whole. Because if we have a top-heavy economy in which almost all the income and wealth is at the top, who's going to spend the money for the goods and services that can be produced in the economy? Uh, you need to have an, a universal basic income, uh, a subsistence wage, in order to give people the wherewithal to buy I mean, even Henry Ford understood this. Uh, remember when he, we, he gave his factory workers uh, an extra bonus uh, so that they could turn around and, and buy. Uh, that was uh, important not only for the sale of Model T Fords, but it was also important for the economy as a whole. Well, so then for the kinds of things that you're talking about, I mean, 
how do you help to generate the political will to create some of these these types of policies that, while they may be popular broadly, don't get passed? Well, Nina, that's the big question we're now facing. Uh, as I said before, there are a list of things that Joe Biden and the Biden administration can do even without Congress, uh, so that regardless of what happens January 5th, uh, they are there and they can and should be implemented. Uh, but obviously, it becomes far easier to be bolder if you have uh, the Senate. And uh, if those two elections on January 5th uh, are... Uh, are, are won by Democrats, then you have a 50-50 split and Kamala Harris can be the deciding vote. And essentially then Joe Biden uh, can be far, far bolder. Uh, it is not just a matter of party though. And I want to emphasize this because uh, there is a an oligarchy in this country. That is, uh, wealth and power are in the hands of a fairly small number of people uh, who have great influence even in the Democratic Party. I don't want to uh, sound like I'm indulging in, for, in kind of false equivalence here, because there is a big difference between the two parties in terms of their willingness and ability to respond to the public interest and the needs of the bottom two-thirds. Uh, but uh, nevertheless, uh, having worked in a Democratic administration, even uh, for two years when Democrats had both the House and the Senate, I know the power of big money, uh, big business and uh, Wall Street in terms of uh, really stopping uh, what would otherwise be very progressive legislation. I think the only response there and the only answer there is for people who are not big business, not wealthy, not um, part of Wall Street to become much better organized and mobilized uh, and activist, uh, not just around elections, uh, but really after the election. I think that too many times in this country, uh, progressives who I talk with say, well, we won the election, now we can relax. And my point is uh, just the opposite. Uh, once you win an election, that's when you really have to go into high gear because uh, you can have good people in Washington and good people in state capitals, but unless good people outside these capital cities are organized and mobilized to push, to require, to demand that good things get done, the status quo tends to uh, predominate. Interesting, because Pamela writes, I'm tired of hearing guests whine about what they don't like about what Biden is doing. Stop attacking those who are trying to take us off the course of the destruction of America led by Republicans in the Senate and Trump's cronies in the White House. I mean, how do you balance that, right? If you do feel like at least a Biden administration, in your, in your view, is more likely to move toward the things that you would hope. I, I, I look upon the next four years, Nina, as a little bit of a, an opportunity for us to make the kind of corrections uh, that we have failed to make. Uh, I mentioned before 40 years of stagnant wages for two thirds of Americans, uh, but also obviously the environment, also uh, with regard to a dysfunctional healthcare system, uh, there is quite a long list. We can't do it all and Joe Biden can't do it all, but we have a little bit of a, of, of, of a window now um, uh, and if we don't do it, uh, here's what my fear is. I don't want to uh, be a, a spreader of doom and gloom, particularly at the start of administration. But if we don't do it, we could be facing in the future Donald Trump's, as far as the eye can see, uh, 
in the sense that uh, people who are desperate and unhappy and, and feel that the game is rigged will buy into uh, authoritarians uh, who promise the world and who uh, really take their anger and their frustration and channel it towards scapegoats, uh, immigrants, uh, black people, uh, people of color generally. Uh, and uh, we know what happens. History is filled with examples around the world of, of, of the dangers of that. Um, we have a, a reprieve right now. We dodged a bullet. Uh, Donald Trump was not reelected. We have an opportunity, uh, but it's up to all of us not just Biden and the Biden administration, uh, but it's up to all of us to force uh, these kinds of progressive policies uh, to be to be enacted. Let me go to Greg in Redwood City. Hi, Greg. Good morning. I just want to find out um, if your guest could explain what's going on with the difference between Wall Street and Main Street. I mean, you know, so many businesses closing, so many people out of work, and all you know, the dependents that are you know, counting on those funds as well. I mean, I've never seen it so disconnected it's almost like you know it's not a question of of income and quality it's like two different worlds thanks greg i mean yes the stock market is soaring while we're hearing about people just you know literally having to pawn their their son's treasured xbox well they they are two different worlds and greg is absolutely right uh the difference between wall street and mainstream street has never been uh, quite as great in my memory certainly Uh, the reason the stock market is doing so well Remember, the stock market is forward-looking. Investors are trying to make guesses about what the economy will be six months or 10 months or a year from now. Uh, There's also the fact that the top richest 1% of Americans own half of the stock market in the United States, and the richest 10% of Americans own 92% of the stock market. Now, these are people who are managerial and professional. Uh, They haven't lost their jobs for the most part. They are working remotely. Uh, Some of them, many of them are working in high-tech businesses that are doing better than ever. Uh, Because you see, as for example, Americans cannot or will not shop retail, more and more are shopping online. Well, what is the online retailer that has essentially a corner on the entire online retail market? It's basically Amazon. Uh, The same thing with regard to other big high-tech firms. Uh, They are in demand. Their profits are increasing. Their stock prices are soaring. They are pushing up the entire stock market. And also, finally, Nina, you have, uh, and I hate to say it, but you have inside information. when you have market perturbations, when the market is going up and down and there are kind of wild changes in the stock market, people who are in the know, who have inside information about everything from the coronavirus to what is going to happen with regard to changes in laws, uh, those people have an advantage in terms of making investments. Uh, and we know, I mean, look at Kelly Loeffler, for example, senator who was up for re-election or up for election in the uh, on January 5th. Um, we know that she engaged in insider trading and her husband is president of the American of the U.S. Uh, American Stock Exchange, I guess it is. Um, uh, I don't want to put undue uh, emphasis on her alone, but there, I, I know that there is a lot of inside information and insider trading going on, which also uh, explains the difference between what's happening on the stock market and what's happening on Main Street. 
Well, Kristen writes, you mentioned the disparity in income growth via stock market earnings due simply to the purchasing power of the 2%. Is there not a means to tax stock trades at the most intismal level that could be used for some kind of universal income floor? I think we should be taxing stock trades. Uh, a transaction tax was proposed by Bernie Sanders, Elizabeth Warren. Um, in fact, similar proposals have been made for years. Even a very tiny tax on every trade would generate very large sums of money, which could be used for everything from infrastructure to education to COVID relief. Uh, we also ought to be thinking now about what we did in World War One, what we did in World War Two, and the Korean War, and that is an excess profits tax. I mean, we are in a war. I mean, the, the number of people who are dying because of COVID are comparable to the number of Americans uh, who died in World War Two, uh, And it seems to me appropriate that since very large companies and some individuals are raking in extraordinary profits, uh, largely due to their positions in this economy. Because, for example, uh, Jeff Bezos uh, owns a big share of Amazon, and Amazon is and has become absolutely essential to many people who cannot shop retail. Uh, why not an excess profits tax of a sort that we had in World War One, World War Two, and the Korean War? To to finance the things that we need to do. Again, Robert Reich is professor at the Goldman School of Public Policy at Berkeley, former Secretary of Labor under Bill Clinton, and author of The System, Who Rigged It, How We Fixed It. And you, our listeners, are with us talking about this pandemic-induced recession and how we need to do things differently to get out of it to ensure an equitable recovery. And we have so many listeners who've been wanting to call in and comment, but to Art writes, because of the huge inequality plus the economic crisis, please list in order of preference your policy recommendations for California and the U.S. Would a tax on wealth and high income be one of them? Do you think there should be a bill in California to allow cities to tax high wealth and or income? Other states like New York do this already. Why not California? And on a similar note, if I could just add Greg, who writes, a California public bank would be an ideal solution. What does Dr. Reich think? Newsom signed a public banking bill. Also, a prior caller wondered about a debt jubilee. What does Rice think about the possibility of that? Can he address that? So just I know you've mentioned some practical things that uh, Biden can do, but what would be your order of priorities? Uh, well, beyond the things that I listed that Biden can do without Congress, I do think a wealth tax is necessary. We've not seen in this country since the 1920s this degree of wealth uh, accumulating in the hands of a rarely, relatively few people. Uh, and if you tax wealth of a sort, uh, had a wealth tax of a sort that Bernie Sanders and Elizabeth Warren both were proposing, uh, not taxing everybody, obviously, but taxing um, people who have above, say, uh, $20 million of wealth or $50 million of wealth, um, a relatively small tax could go a very long way. Uh, I also am in favor of a public bank. I think that Wall Street is raking in ridiculous sums of money because every time money moves in the society, uh, you have Wall Street's hand out getting even a little piece of it. Um, and uh, a public bank would be cheaper. It would be better for the public. Uh, it would be more responsive in many ways to the public. A debt jubilee. Uh, I think that uh, one thing that Joe Biden could do right off uh, is to cancel federal student debt, for example. Uh, 
um, and that's something that he ought to do. Uh, $50,000, up to $50,000 of student debt for, let's say, households that have less than $100,000 of wealth or income, uh, I think that's long overdue. And, and I think we ought to be doing that. Well, Nabiko writes, what are the long-term implications of the economic disparities that have been exacerbated by the pandemic for communities of color and low-income communities? And I think as I hear you say all of this, I'd love for you to address Nabiko's question, but also realistically what you think the trajectory will be of this recession and its recovery, just in terms of who we have now in the White House, you know, what California is preparing to do. I know you said you're cautiously optimistic sort of broadly, but do you, you, do you have anything more specific around that? Uh, well, Nina, uh, I think that the recovery, and there will be an economic recovery. There is always an economic recovery. It's kind of the obverse of Newton's law. Everything that goes down eventually comes up. Uh, but rather than a V-shaped recovery, which is one that suddenly takes off because of all the pent-up demand, uh, or even a U-shaped, which is a little bit slower, uh, I think that we are likely to see, if nothing fundamentally changes in the organization of our economy, uh, what might be called a K-shaped economy uh, recovery. And by that, I mean the people who are already doing fairly well, who already have jobs, uh, who are uh, relatively privileged, uh, they will continue to do much, much better. Um, but everybody else, um, they may get jobs back, but those jobs will not pay very much. And there will continue to be problems of affording rent and mortgages uh, as housing prices continue to skyrocket. Uh, so in other words, the, the, the real challenge in front of us, and I can't say this strongly enough, is not just getting out of the current pandemic recession. It is really getting out of a 40-year trend of widening inequality. They are different challenges. We mustn't mix the two challenges up. Yes. Uh, we can, and Joe Biden must, help the nation emerge from this uh, pandemic and recession. Robert Reich, we'll have to leave it there. Thanks so much for talking with us about the impact of this pandemic on our economy. Thank you. Thanks. Thanks to Blanca Torres as well for producing today's segment and for our listeners for their great questions and comments. You're listening to Forum. I'm Mina Kim. Funds for the production of Forum are provided by the members of KQED Public Radio and the Germanicos Foundation and the Generosity Foundation. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. 
Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. All over the country, we need to improve reading in Wisconsin. Schools are changing the way they teach reading. I'm calling for a renewed focus on literacy. We have gotten this wrong in New York and all across the nation. And it's happening because of a podcast. I think your podcast has changed my life. And I'm going to share this podcast with everyone I meet. Sold a Story investigates how teaching kids to read went wrong. New episodes of Sold a Story are available now.